The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 17, what you just heard Brent read for us. A number of years ago as I was preparing for a mission trip, the missions class was talking about the, uh, the hidden and pervasive as- aspect or, or influence of our culture on us. Saying that we don't really fully understand how our culture has affected us and it's not until you go overseas and go to another setting that you start to realize how differently people approach the basic things of life food clothing shelter interpersonal relationships uh, societal relationships all that's part of the culture and this question that the teacher used was this does a fish know that it's wet I remember that stuck with me and a number of years later we, my family went to uh, uh, the Boston Aquarium and we were seeing these tropical fish and I was like, do you know you're wet? It's like, I, I don't know how you even think of that but there's this, this sense of pervasive influence that's around us at every moment. It's a, it's a bit humorous, this question. But it has to do with our inability to rise above our surrounding culture and see it as it really is. And even more, to see how it's affecting us. How it actually is influencing our minds and hearts the way we live every moment. We're unable to get above that and see it. We need something from the outside in. So the deeper question is, do we realize the ways the world is influencing us? The way the New Testament speaks of the world. Can we see the danger of the corrupting influence of the world on our souls? Can we see that danger and flee to Christ for refuge? To flee to Christ for cleansing, to flee to Christ for ongoing transformation and protection because we are in mortal danger every moment from the world. Spiritual danger. Now the one asking the question, does the fish know it's wet, is obviously standing outside of the sea, outside of the ocean and looking down on the fish with that perspective. The human being is dry. But knows what it is to swim. We are vastly above the fish. We're able to look down on its environment and ask that interesting question. But we can't do that for ourselves. We need someone outside of us to do that for us. And that's what the Holy Spirit does through the scripture. Perfectly holy, perfectly above the world, looking down and saying, do you understand what you're in? And let me reveal to you. This world system that is pulling on your soul every moment. Let me show you the world in all of its allure and enticing power and its utter revulsive wickedness. Let me pull back the veil like this book of Revelation does in, in ways that no other book of the Bible does. Let me unveil the great prostitute of Babylon. Let me show you the world and all of its corrupting influence. This world in which we live and move and have our being. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 is the key text in the New Testament on the danger of the world. 
And it's kind of a partner text to what we're looking at today in Revelation 17. There John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, that is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world, listen to this, the world and its desires pass away. Now that simple asserted truth, the world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God will abide, will dwell forever. That's the theme of the next two chapters of Revelation. Revelation 17 and 18. This world system will pass away. And the only one who will survive that passing away, which is not a benign passing away, it is under the judgment and wrath of God, the only one that will survive is the one who does the will of God. And so John in 1 John warns us most directly of this world system, a magnetic system of lusts that attracts us off of the path of righteousness and holiness to serve sin. James also warns us of the same threat in different language. In James 4, 4 and 5, there he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God? Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit that he caused to live in us envies intensely? That's a difficult verse, James 4, 5, but let's take it as a holy spirit. Could also be a human spirit within us and it would make sense there in an opposite sort of way. But the holy spirit who dwells within us is jealous over us. Jealous over our affections. And so James uses the analogy of spiritual adultery. That to go after the world is, is to be drawn away from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians um, 11. Sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And to go after worldliness. So James says to be in love with this present world is like committing spiritual adultery to God. Like being a wandering, unfaithful wife who cannot stay put and love and please her husband. And it provokes his spirit to jealousy. Right now I'm doing scripture memorization in the book of Hosea. And he was commanded by God to marry a prostitute, Gomer. And he's got to go buy her time. So he can spend time with his own wife. And he's got to block her in so she won't pursue her lovers. And in that story, we always want to put ourselves well. It's like, we are not Hosea. We are Gomer. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Seal it from the world's and all of its influence. Now, Paul tells us where this world system, this evil, corrupted system comes from. What is, what is making it so powerful and so evil? In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's the world. And so there is a kingdom of the air, a spiritual kingdom, and there is a prince of that kingdom named Satan. And he has crafted and set up this worldly, alluring system. 
singing a, a siren song to us as we navigate and calling us to wreck our ship, the ship of our souls, on the shoals of sin. That's what's going on every moment. And he mentions that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's invisible, he's powerful, he's constantly surrounding us. And he says the essence of life in this world, the worldly system, is to gratify the cravings of our flesh, those bodily uh, drives and desires, the pleasures of the body and of the mind. That's the nature of the world. Now this world system has been working its devastation for millennia, for centuries, for thousands of years. And it's working right now. Right now. On you and me, all of us. Do you feel its influence? Do you feel the pull? Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you aware of the daily assault on your soul? Do you know the way the prince of the power of the air is pulling on you to cause you to depart from a path of sincere and pure devotion to Christ to worldliness? Little by little, boiling the frog until you just don't even notice anymore. Pushing you to act in lust, defying God, defying his holy laws. Does the fish know it's wet? Do you know how you are worldly? Do I? And I would say no chapters in the Bible so clearly reveal the world from the spiritual heaven down perspective as do these two chapters, Revelation 17 and 18. So we're going to walk through Revelation 17 this week, God willing, Revelation 18 next week. And we're going to see in this chapter, unveiled in the most vivid terms, the mystery of Babylon the Great. Portrayed in here, in this apocalyptic vision, as a prostitute riding the beast. And she's dressed in luxury and she's drinking from a, a golden cup. And we're going to see how she will be at the end of the world. But we need to have a sense of how she is right now. Right now. Now in the next chapter, we'll see plainly her outcome, the final demise, the fall of the world system called Babylon the Great. Now in both chapters, you're going to get a plain warning, and it's in Revelation 18 and verse 4. Look at that. It's probably right there on the same page, but look at Revelation 18, 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven. This is the voice of your heavenly Father, the voice of God, saying, come out of her, my people. So that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. It's a command to holy separation from the surrounding world. That's the central application of these two chapters to the people of God. These chapters are written for us. They're written for Christians. So that we may know the end, the outcome of this system of, of illicit sin and, and pleasure and, and, and worldliness. Where is it all heading? That we may see where it's heading while there's time and flee. To Christ. That's the point. All right, so let's begin at verse 1 and 2, Revelation 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. And with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated by the wine of her adulteries. So the book of Revelation ends with two women unveiled. Revealed to us. Revelation is a book of, of re revealing, unveiling. And they are the great whore or prostitute of Babylon here in Revelation 17. And the radiant bride of Christ in Revelation 21. And the language is so striking and so similar that we're going to see the same thing again in Revelation 21. If God gives us time to study it. 
And these two women are meant to be revealed to us so that we can see them plainly and understand their true nature. Here, the vision is revealed and guided by one of the seven angels who poured out his bowls of judgment on the earth. The very thing we studied last week, Revelation 16. The the seven bowls, the final judgments that the angels are going to pour out. And so Revelation 17, 18, as I mentioned, are, are a pause and a parenthesis to help us understand what is being judged. What is God pouring out his judgment on? Why is he pouring out this judgment? And Revelation 16, we saw last week, is a devastation, a destruction so overwhelming we can scarcely imagine what it would even be like. And we know that life on earth would be impossible for long after they're done. So that's right before the second coming of Christ. So John and Revelation go backward now in these two chapters to show us the enemy that Christ is fighting, that Christ will destroy with the breath of his mouth. Now, after the third angel poured out his uh, bowl on the earth and turned all the waters in the earth into blood, he celebrated the justice of that judgment with these words, Revelation 16, 5 and 6. You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve." Well, so that's what's happening. The, the world and its hatred for Christ and its hatred for Christ's people has shed their blood, made martyrs of them. In Revelation 17, we, sh- we are shown the bloodthirsty woman who is drunk with the blood of the saints. She is the one driving the slaughter of God's precious children that the angel says deserves that they should drink blood for what they've done. So one of the seven angels invites John to come with him, a prophetic vision, a vision in the spirit. So come, I'm going to show you something. So he travels with him in the spirit. And so he can see this woman, this prostitute who sits on many waters. She is filthy and alluring and wicked. And with her, he says, the kings of the earth have committed adultery. And with her, he says, the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her adulteries. And so John in verse 3 and 4 goes away in the spirit to see her. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the desert, a desert. And there I saw a a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names. Verse 4, the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. And she held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. So there's this filthy woman being portrayed in Revelation 17. It's amazing the similar language in Revelation 21. So you could just turn over there or just listen. In Revelation 21, 9 through 11, it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. It's almost the exact same language. And same thing again, verse 10. And he carried me away in the Spirit. Only this time not to a desert, but to a mountain great and high. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a a jasper clear as crystal. So these women, I think, in these final chapters are meant to be held side by side. John's given exact same language so that we will compare them. As a contrast, one of them alluring, enticing, but filthy and wicked. The other one, radiant, majestic, holy, stunningly beautiful. Shining she is with the, with the glory of God. The prostitute versus the bride. 
So who is this woman? Well, at the end of the chapter, verse 18, go ahead, Revelation 17, 18. Back in Revelation 17, verse 18, it says, The woman that you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. She is also called Babylon the Great. Now, we're going to discuss each detail as we walk through this chapter. But she is the world of people who are both themselves allured and enticed by Satan's appeal to the flesh. And they are themselves enticing and alluring to others to sin with them. So they're individual people, but taken all together. And they are living a rebellious life. They've been deceived and they're intoxicated with the world. And they've they've become part of the problem. Jesus says, whoever does not gather with me scatters. So that's, it's a city of people. Babylon the Great. And she has a wandering, corrupted heart. And she must be paid for all her affections and all her services. She has no faithfulness. She has no commitment to a bridegroom. By contrast, the bride of Christ is the church. The godly people from every tribe, language, people, and nation who have escaped the allure and corruptions of the world and have devoted themselves entirely, body, soul, and spirit to the bridegroom, to Christ, the lover of of her soul. Now, the lesson of this chapter is the judgment of the prostitute. I would say there's two lessons. Uh, One is what is the prostitute? What is she like? She's revealed, so we know her. And then, more importantly, that Having known her, we see her judgment, her punishment. And the the point again is Revelation 18.4, that we will flee in disgust and fear from her and follow Christ and be protected by faith in Christ. That's the goal. So, together we're going to see the nature, Revelation 17.18, the nature of the world and its alluring system of corruption and her future judgment. So verse 1, he says, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute, who sits on many waters. John wants us to know. More importantly, God wants us to know that she is doomed to destruction. Flee the city. She's doomed. So we flee the wrath to come. Well, look at the description of her. Her location, it says she sits on many waters. Many of the greatest cities in the world are port cities, harbor cities, because of the ease of commerce. So you think about the ancient city of Tyre and Sidon and as a port city. Uh, Modern day cities like New York or Singapore, Hong Kong. These are harbor cities, port cities. And it's because of the ease of commerce and trade. And we're going to see this plainly in Revelation uh, 18. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, she's, you you know, in Revelation 18, the perspective is given of of ship's captains that stand from afar and can see her fall, Babylon the Great falling. And so there's that sense of commerce and trade. We'll get that very clearly next week, God willing. But verse 15 tells us what the waters represent. She sits on many waters, uh, referring to the fact that she gets her power and influence from the teeming mass of humanity, of people worldwide. Verse 15, the angel said, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are... Peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So that's what the waters represent. They're peoples, nations. Now her actions, uh, she allures the nations to drunkenness and sin. Look at verse 2. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So this world system allures people all over the world to sin through temptations. 
So the angel initiates a vision with John. He wants to show him, and through him, all Christians in every generation, us, the true nature of the harlot city of Babylon the Great. That we'll know what she's really like. Now, in verses 3 through 6, we have the vision given us, this apocalyptic vision of a drunken woman riding a beast. So that's the, the symbolic language we have of this world system. Verse 3, the angel carries John away in the spirit into a desert. So he takes her to a desert. Why a desert? Well, in the book of Isaiah and many other prophetic uh, books in the Old Testament, desert is a, is a picture of the judgment of God, of sterility, of fruitlessness. The fruitless deeds of darkness, Paul talks about. Fruitlessness. Nothing eternally good comes from this system of wickedness. So it's a desert. It's the absence of God's blessing. The absence of life. Then the woman is described in verse 3 through 5. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. So her posture, she's seated on a scarlet beast. Both the beast and the woman are scarlet in color. A vivid color, a lurid color. Kind of reminds one of the shedding of the blood of the saints and prophets. You know, this kind of blood red color. Now the beast, as we've already learned, is the antichrist as he rules a world system. A geopolitical system. An empire ruled by a single tyrant ruler. We already have the beast introduced to us. That's not, it's, a, it's a combination of a, of a worldwide geopolitical system, an empire, military power, consolidated by one man, the beast, the Antichrist. Now, the woman sitting on the beast, riding the beast, either represents that she's riding the beast where she wants it to go, like she's in charge, or that the beast is supporting her and enabling her to do the things she wants to do. And I think it's more of the latter because toward the end of this chapter, the beast rises up and shreds her. Which is a mysterious and difficult insight. But at any rate, I think it's that fundamentally, the beast is using the woman for his own purposes. Using her. Now the beast is covered with blasphemous names. The beast, the Antichrist, openly embraces blasphemy. He demands to be worshipped as God, and he defies the true God, the living God. So he's blasphemous. Now, like the dragon, Satan, in the vision in Revelation 12, he has seven heads and ten horns. So these represent the different kingdoms and nations that come together to make the beast's empire. And it also represents the total harmony between Satan and the Antichrist. They're all working together. It's the same picture. The demons, Satan... The wicked world system together. So the Antichrist is supporting the woman, enabling her to live the life that she is living. Look at her apparel, her clothing. She's dressed, as I mentioned, in purple and scarlet. These are the clothes of luxury. Purple dye in particular is a symbol of wealth back in those days. A symbol of wealth and royalty and luxury. It was attained from the secretions of mollusks, that's like snails and clams that are native to the Mediterranean Sea, four in particular, four species, that give off a purple dye. 
And it would take approximately 8,000 of these small aquatic sea creatures to make a single gram of purple dye. So it's extremely expensive. Purple cloth was extremely expensive and almost exclusively reserved for royalty and nobility in every nation. Kings, queens, nobles, the movers and shakers of the world, the, the wealthy. In addition, she's glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She's wealthy, and she's holding a golden cup in her hand. So these are all pictures of luxury and power and uh, a comfortable lifestyle. She's drinking from the golden cup, a picture of ease and pleasure as she reclines on the beast. Now she's drinking, the woman's drink, the golden cup uh, in her hand is filled with abominable things and the filth of her adultery. She's drunk with illicit pleasure. Remember what the second angel said about uh, Babylon back in Revelation 14, 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. So she's drinking the, the, the maddening wine, the, the wine that gives insanity. Now since the word adultery uh, is used, we should see her as reclining at a, at a raucous feast, getting drunk on wickedness. Living out a life of pleasure and, and ease and immoral, sensual excess, especially sexual. And the woman has this title written on her forehead, this mysterious title proclaiming her identity to John and through him to, to us, to the world. Verse 5, mystery, mystery, Babylon the Great. The mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Now, the word mystery refers to the special spiritual insight you need to understand this vision. Her identity and activity in the world are a spiritual mystery. They're hidden from us unless God reveals it to us. We're not going to see it. It's a mystery. It also refers perhaps to the mystery religions back then, the religions of, of, of secrecy, where you would gain ascendancy in circles of knowledge as you learned more about the mystery religion. You could gain more, more words of knowledge and get to a higher and higher level in that mystery religion. That's how those mystery religions would work in the ancient Near East. Jesus uh, speaks of the prophetess Jezebel in Thyatira, in his warning in Revelation 2, who is leading some of the church members to commit sexual immorality with her in secret. And Jesus speaks of those who have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. So there's a sense of a, of a hidden mystery to the allure and, and in, intoxication of their wickedness. It's hidden. It's for this reason many uh, evangelical interpreters think this woman is a religion. It's a religious system. Or represents the religions of the world. Immoral pagan religions, but religions. That come together under the beast for a while. And, but then he does away with them. And sets himself up in his own final religion. And that's very possible. However, I will say this. There's nothing overtly said about religion in this chapter. It just seems to be safer to stay home-based with the idea of worldliness here. And there will be a religious impact of it, but it's basically she represents worldliness more than an organized religion, a pagan religion. But it's possible. Now, she's called Babylon the Great. And Babylon is a symbol of a pagan empire worldwide, the essence of human rebellion against God. 
It was begun back in Genesis 10 by a hunter named Nimrod who founded the city of Babel. And the people who lived there, the Babylonians, at some point made a tower of Babel to, to make a name for themselves and to, to show their own greatness and their own elevation. And that's where God came down and confused the languages. Babylon, in time, became the empire that came along the Fertile Crescent, swooped down, put an end to the Assyrian Empire, and then invaded under Nebuchadnezzar the Promised Land and put an end to the Kingdom of Judah, and put an end to Jewish sovereignty in the Promised Land and deported the Jews in the Babylonian captivity. Now Babylon, as was predicted under Isaiah and Jeremiah and other prophets, was crushed and judged by God. But it happened over a series of centuries. So Babylon, it took a while for Babylon to be crushed. However, the spirit of Babylon rose up out of the ashes of the literal city of Babylon and just move, and would move to wherever the world-dominating empire, geopolitical, military, economic center of power, Babylon was there. And in time, it became Rome. And so Peter, at the end of his epistle, in 1 Peter 5.13, says, who's there in Rome, church history has it traditionally in Rome, writes these words, 1 Peter 5.13, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Well, that's the church in Rome. She who is in Babylon, the bride of Christ in Rome. But she's in Babylon. Why? Because that's Babylon now. The old city is crushed, it's destroyed, it's razed, but now we've got a new Babylon, it's Rome. It's just continued. Since Rome fell, the, the spirit of Babylon has moved from place to place. And it's with us today. It's a vast, unifying system of illicit pleasure. And there's an intelligence behind it, the five sense appetites, the stimulation of ver various nerve endings through food and drink and drugs and material possessions and luxuries and power on a worldwide scale. The world of pleasure. Now in verse 6, she's drunk with the blood of the saints. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony of Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. So the woman's drinking actually a varied kind of mixed wine. The wine of adulteries and immoralities and illicit pleasure, yes. But also the blood of the saints. She's drinking the blood of the saints. Why is that? Because she hates people who will not join with her in her immorality. She'll heap abuse on them. She hates them. And so she actually enjoys seeing them killed. It's pleasure to her to see the saints and prophets, the followers of Christ, who will not follow her in her immoralities, to see them die. She enjoys that. So she's drunk with the blood of Christians. And so we know that Romans would go to the Colosseum and they would just enjoy watching the helpless Christians ripped to shreds by wild animals or killed, defenseless, killed by gladiators. They just enjoyed watching the blood of Christians spill. Now John's reaction when he sees this is amazement. It's He's marveling. And this is an important concept. We cannot know her unless God reveals her to us. John was surprised it was this bad. Underestimated the wickedness of this woman, Babylon the Great. So, you know, if I can just stop and apply this. Just ask God to show you with eyes of faith this world we live in. Ask him to show you what it will look like on Judgment Day. Ask him to show it to you immediately. Please, oh God, show me the world I live in. Please warn me from this corrupting influence. So John's astonished. Now, in verses 7 through 13, John gives an interpretation. 
Verse 7, the angel says, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. Now, interestingly, the, the, the angel says nothing about the woman over the next number of verses, just about the beast. Verses 7 through 13 focus exclusively on the beast and his horns. Verse 8, the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. So the final phase of this worldwide godless system of domination will be under the reign of the last, the final Antichrist. It's coming. But it comes and goes in every era of history. It comes and goes, waxes and wanes. The empires rise and they fall again back into the dust of the earth. It just keeps coming. Different version. Same thing though. And John says the beast once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss. Now the word abyss shows the demonic nature of all this. Because back in, in uh, Revelation 9 we have this, this deep pit, this abyss. And billowing up out of it come this demonic invasion. So you should think of the woman as, as essentially inspired and dominated by demons. So the, the beast comes up out of the abyss and he, his kingdom is demonic and so is the world system. And ultimately he says it's going to go to destruction when Jesus returns. He will destroy the final phase of that empire. Now this could also, the astonishment could refer to the miracle that we've already talked about where the beast was, was killed. It seemed to have received a mortal wound but then comes to life again. And the whole world is astonished and gives their heart to the beast to worship as a god. And so it could refer to that in that miracle that we've already talked about. But the elect, those chosen from before the foundation of the world whose names are written in Christ's book of life from before the foundation of the world, we will not be deceived. We are not going to be part of this whole thing. We know what's going on. How? Because he told us. He's telling you right now. So if you're elect, you're chosen, you're, you're, you're wise to flee all this in this present evil age. Now, the mystery of the seven hills, verse 9 and 10, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One... Uh, one is and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he will remain for only a little while. Now listen, when it comes to prophetic visionary books, like Revelation of the book of Daniel, or Jesus in Matthew 24, what's called the little apocalypse, whenever there's a call for wisdom, I've learned that what that means is we have to combine together two things. Scripture and its predictions and current events. You put them together. Like when Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation rising in, in the place where it ought not to be, run for your lives. It's like, well, that's got to be a current event. When you see something, I, gotta, you know, I can't just be reading in Scripture. We don't run for our lives in every generation or every day. So when I see something, it's going to combine. Same thing here. So therefore, friends, I don't know what this verse is talking about. I don't fully understand the details. But the final generation will know exactly what's happening. So this calls for a mind of wisdom on these five and one and one to come and the seven and then the eighth must remain for a little while. It's confusing. It's difficult to understand. The best I can make of it is that the number seven, the seven hills, immediately to John and his hearers, they would think Rome. There's no doubt about it. 
Rome was a city on the Tiber built on seven hills. It was called the, the city of the seven hills. Everybody knew that's code language for Rome. There's no doubt about it. And Rome was the dominating power of John's age. Because of this clear reference to Rome with its seven hills, many Protestant commentators from the Reformation on have seen the great beast, uh, or I mean the, uh, sorry, the great prostitute of, of Babylon as the Roman Catholic Church and its corruption of the gospel. However, I think that's just too narrow. I just think that the spirit of Babylon moves and doesn't just focus on the city, the one city of Rome. And so we want to critique the Roman Catholic presentation of the gospel. Well, we should. Are they preaching the gospel of justification by faith alone? Are they doing that? But to narrow this all down to Roman Catholicism, and that's exactly what we're talking about, is too narrow. There is a spirit of Rome today. It's not just religious. It's power. It's domination. It's wealth. All of that. Now, the number seven, the seven hills, I think is symbolic as well. It's the number of completion. And the hills represent man's lofty ambitions, like the Tower of Babel, right? Or Nebuchadnezzar up on the roof looking out over Babylon saying, is this not the great Babylon I have built for the praise of my glory and all that kind of thing. And it says in Isaiah 2 that the final day will come when the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established above all the other hills, and all the lofty towers and the tall trading vessels and all the, the, the oaks of Bashan, all these lofty things are going to be leveled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So this seven hills, I think, represents human pride and arrogance as they try to build Tower of Babel after Tower of Babel in every generation, arrogantly defying God. And he's going to level them. And he says the seven hills are also seven kings. So clearly it's not just Rome here. The hills just don't say, hey, I'm talking about Rome. But they also represent kings. A series of kings leading a series of empires, one after the other. Five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. And so I just imagine here a series of empires, one after the other. And current events, the United States has its place, just like the British Empire had its time. And then who knows what's going to come after the U.S. is no longer the most powerful nation on earth. It's just going to keep on going. The spirit of Babylon in every generation. Do not imagine that this nation is exempt. Do not imagine that every inclination of the policymakers of Washington are only the glory of God and of his Christ all the time. You know it's not. Now the ten horns represents a coalition, I think, of final kings that don't, they may or may not be alive right now, but they don't have their power now. At least not, can be identified. Verse 12 and 13, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. And they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. So, I think what happens is the seven trumpets sound and bring ecological disaster on the earth. Read about it in Revelation 8 and 9. And people are seeking, because one-third of the water has turned to blood back at that point, are seeking fresh water. Borders are destroyed. Upheaval, economic upheaval. And out of that rise a coalition of leaders, like you can imagine the United Nations. And from that comes one man. The most Machiavellian leader ever, who's able to, through intrigue and assassination and other things, take control. He then becomes, not like Jesus, but similar, a parody, a king of kings and lord of lords ruling over lesser kings who run their kingdoms and their areas, but they come together to give him his power. Now, they had not risen in John's day. They may not yet have risen in our day. 
But they're going to come together. And it says they're going to rule the world for one hour. Very short time. And they're going to come together as an alliance, a coalition of force to give their power and their authority to the beast. And he's going to use them to rule the world. And God's going to use them to gather the world together for one final battle. So powerful. They think they're doing this and instead God is using them. They have one purpose. They're of one mind. They serve the beast. They fight against Christ and against his people. In verse 14, they make war against the lamb. They're fighting Jesus. They hate Jesus. And they're going to the ten kings together with the beast. They're going to come together to try to kill Jesus. But they can't get to him. So they go after Jesus' people. And so they're coming together. And they're going to fight this one final battle. The ten kings come together. The remaining dissidents against the beast, against the Antichrist reign, are believers. Both Jewish Christians now and Gentile believers. They will not receive the mark of the beast. And many of them may be consolidated, the Jews may be consolidated in Jerusalem, in that area, in the promised land. So there's a place the beast can go with his armies, the armies of the world, to wipe them out once and for all. Genocidal intentions toward the Jews. But now they're believers in Christ. God has taken away the blindness from their hearts and now they have called on him and cried and mourned for him as for an only son. This is all predicted in Zechariah. And they turn at last to Christ and the Lord loves them, and, and, but they're there in that geopolitical area. And, they, and the Antichrist comes with the ten kings, one big army, to fight the Lamb. The Lamb is loyal to his people. And they, their names have been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. They will not, have not received the mark of the beast. They will not bow the knee. And they have very little power. And the Antichrist pulls all of this power together in the most one-sided battle ever in history. Yeah, but it's the other way around. It is the most one-sided battle in history. But they're going to lose it. And so he gathers them together. In Revelation 16, 16, the previous chapter, we saw this. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And then again in, in Revelation 19, 19, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, listen, gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. So they're coming together to fight Jesus. And they're going to make war on the lamb. Well, who's going to win? What does the text say? Look at verse 14. But he will win. Why? Because he's God. Because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. You can't defeat Jesus. And it's not even going to be difficult for him. He's not going to sweat. It's not going to be a hard battle. He's going to speak and they will be judged. That simple. We'll read about it in Revelation 19. Now the purpose in all of this is that evil would be consolidated and destroyed. The woman, as we've seen, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. The waters are the nations, peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns hate the prostitute, it says. Look at verse 16. Excuse me. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. And they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now this is a very difficult verse for me to explain. And I'm not certain that the explanation that I'm about to give will be satisfying to you. But here's what I make of it. The woman represents worldly pleasure. The beast and behind him Satan don't have any interest in giving anybody any pleasure at all. 
actually Satan is anti-human in every respect. And has no desire ever to make anyone happy ever. He is a thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. He doesn't love the Antichrist. He doesn't love his servants. He hates every human being. Talking about Satan. And the Antichrist is like him. He's not desiring to give pleasure to anybody. And so yes, the wealthy, luxurious, powerful people of the world have given him his power. But he doesn't love them. And he doesn't want them to have anything good. And frankly, under his rule, they're going to come to total destruction and ruin. They're going to be stripped and destroyed. He's not trying to bless them and, in, and enrich them and help them. He wants to kill them and destroy them. And so when it comes to pleasure, I think we need to understand Satan's intention. C.S. Lewis and Screwtape Letters put it this way. In that book, it's an odd book in which an older demon is giving tempting advice to a younger demon. It's like, this is how we're going to tempt the people. That's what Screwtape Letter is all about. And he discusses the topic of pleasure, normal physical pleasure. And this is Screwtape speaking to Wormwood. Never forget, says Screwtape, that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy, normal, satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on enemy territory. Now I know that we devils have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's still God's invention, not ours. God made the pleasure. All of the pleasures, all of our research, so far has not enabled us to produce a single one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take pleasures which God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is the least natural. Reminding people the least of its maker and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing Craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return, that's what really gladdens our father's, Satan's heart. So to give increasing enslavement to decreasing pleasure, that's what Satan's trying to do. Adolf Hitler kind of represented this to a degree. There was, there was no pleasure in his life. He didn't love food. He had a very abstemious diet. Seemed to have like no sexual tendencies at all. Twisted, sick, strange individual who only lusted for military conquest and power and ended his life in a reinforced concrete bunker apart from anything beautiful or delightful or pleasure-giving surrounded by a smoldering, rubble-filled city, capital city of Berlin. So just picture that. The people that gave him his power who were yearning for prosperity and comfort and so they ended up with nothing they were ended up dead so that's what i think it means in verse 16 that in the end she's destroyed under the beast's rule now god's plan in all this is to draw out all of the evil draw it up and out suck the poison up and make it obvious so we can see it that's what's happening in human history when we get done with all of this we will see how evil evil really is and so he's drawing it all together. Verse 17, their purpose is to give power to the beast. But God's purpose, look at verse 17. God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. It says in Romans chapter 4, talking about Adam's sin. The law was added so that this trespass might increase. God did that. But where sin increased or abound, grace abound all the more. 
This whole thing's for our education, for the elect, for the godly. We can see evil, and we will hate it and turn from it in the end. All right, what applications can we take from this? Well, first, in verse 4 and 5 of Revelation 18, this is our application. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Ask God to show you that you are wet, that you are surrounded by the world, that the world has had an influence on the way that you think and live. The world has influenced the way you think about money. The world has influenced the way you think about time. It's influenced the way you think about your profession or your future. The world is influencing the way you think about marital relations. The world is influencing you. And you need to first see how it is and ask God to give you a heart of repentance. A lot of sexual immoralities in this. That's a particular area of weakness for we humans. Ask God to show you if you're violating your conscience in the sexual area. Ask him to grant you repentance and protection from sexual sin. Ask if you have any pattern of addictions in your life. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I'm not going to be enslaved by anything. He also says in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest after I have preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. So what does it mean for you to beat your body and make it your slave? What are your appetites? What, what are you addicted to? Ask God to give you freedom. For you who are not yet Christians, I'm asking you to flee to Christ. The world is, has an even greater influence on you than it does on the Christians. Flee the wrath to come in Christ. Find in Christ, in his atoning work, in his bloodshed, your forgiveness, your salvation. And finally, all of us, let's understand the future of this Babylonian system we're living in. The future of pleasure. The future of pleasure. That pleasure is going to, going to destruction. But there is a greater pleasure that is coming. Pleasure at the right hand of God that it talks about in Psalm 16. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The pleasures of knowing God and of his Christ. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the things that we've learned in this very difficult chapter. Help us to be aware, very aware, of how the world is influencing us and drawing us away from holiness. Help us to stand firm and to fight and to not allow ourselves to be corrupted and polluted by the world. Help us to help each other. Help men to help other men and women to help women. Help us to disciple each other and ask each other questions of accountability. Help us to pray for each other. And Lord, help us to yearn for the day when there, when there will be no more evil, no more wickedness in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.